Welcome to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for staff and volunteers in the Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement, working with mental health and psychosocial support services. My name is Jesper Gule, and I'm a communications officer working for the IFRC Psychosocial Center. Every year on September 10th, we observe World Suicide Prevention Day. According to the WHO, almost 800,000 people die from suicide every year. That is one person every 40 seconds. But suicides can be prevented. As a matter of fact, many Red Cross Red Crescent national societies around the world already have services or programs responding to people at risk of suicide or self-harm. And that is what we will talk about in this episode. Here in the studio with me is Sarah Harrison, technical team lead at the IFRC Psychosocial Center. And before we begin talking about programs in national societies, let me ask you, is there a theme to World Suicide Prevention Day similar to but we know from World Mental Health Day that takes place next month. Yes, there is. So the theme for 2022 to 2023 is creating hope through action. So it's quite a nice positive theme for a tough topic. And to you, what what does that mean? Um, well, very much creating hope is about helping people to not end their own life, but to actually choose to continue living and to show people resources that enable them to continue living so to focus very much on the positives in their life um, and a reason to get up and get out of bed in the morning and a reasons not to dwell on the negative and the the spiral that people can end up going into when they choose to end their own life and why is world suicide prevention day important it's important because suicide is still a very very taboo topic it's very stigmatized in many societies around the world it's still illegal in a number of countries um which means that it makes it from a, a legal perspective difficult to talk about in addition to a, a more ethical or religious or cultural perspective. And suicide is also, it's it's a, it's gendered, um, if I can say that as well. People end, choose to end their own lives for individual reasons, but there is a gender um, nuance to it, if I can say that, but it's not so black and white. So in, for example, in the UK, United Kingdom, between two to three times more men choose to end their own life whereas in um, other countries such as Afghanistan it's more females that are choosing to, to take their own life um, in countries in the more developed world we see a lot of youth young people adolescents um, either engaging in self-harm or or yeah choosing to take their own life um, whereas in countries which are slightly poorer um, India for example we see um, it tends to be more adults who have um, lost an income lost a livelihood to have big family responsibilities and don't feel able to cope it could be with debt for example so it tends to be more adults that um, are then ending their own life so there's a gender and an age dynamic but I think ultimately there's an individual reason for why someone wishes to to end their life and it's important because of the sheer numbers of people attempting to do it every minute of every day globally. So I assume that also means the response would also be very different in different cultures. Yeah, exactly. Very much so. So you need to be able to know who, like a broad profile of who is at risk in your particular country context or national society. Who is, yeah, who are the, statistically, who are the people that are, are, are trying to take their own lives? And you can get that from government data or from WHO. Um, and then, as, yeah, and then work out programs. So how you speak to an Indian farmer who's lost his livelihood and might be in extreme drought at the moment um, and lost all his crops and is in debt is very different than how you're talking to perhaps a, a teenager in America who is really struggling and has got anxiety problems and 
yeah, they're thinking about ending their life. But if, if we think in more uh, general terms, um, how can a Red Cross, Red Crescent volunteer respond when someone discloses they wish to end their life? Yeah, um, I think it's very tough thing to hear from anybody, actually. Um, and I think it's because, as I said at the beginning, there is this this taboo and sensitivity around the topic, aside from the legal implications of it. People will most likely disclose suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation to a friend or to someone that they know in the community. They don't usually talk to strangers about these topics. So that is likely to be a volunteer because the volunteers are quite well known in the communities where they work. So it's a tough thing for a volunteer to hear. And I think that's something that volunteers need to acknowledge um, as well. You also need to be prepared for it. Um, and that comes a little bit with with trainings that can be offered to volunteers on how to manage hearing distressing news from somebody else or how to manage somebody in distress. And I think the important thing is actually very much to listen to a person that's disclosed suicidal thoughts um, and is not to judge them for it or to say that it's um, that they're exaggerating something because they may not be. So first thing is listening. Um, secondly is um making sure that you can sit them down in a quiet location and can genuinely have the time and space to actively listen to them. And then I think it's also very much about um, kind of exploring a little bit um, if they're thinking about doing it immediately. So is this a very acute emergency or is it something that they have genuinely been thoughting, thinking about for the past kind of weeks or months? They might have been having a difficult period. And ex- having those exploring questions, but also thinking about Um, and these are tough things, but to ask, for example, okay, how are you thinking of ending your life? And do you have means to that to do it? So are we talking about someone maybe overdosing on tablets or drinking bleach, um, for example, or is it more extreme things that people say, you know, I found the location where I want to jump from, for example. And then um, is also then having discussions with them about a basic safety plan and say, okay, when you have these thoughts, these negative thoughts, um, who is it that you're going to phone or who is it that you're going to reach out to? Who is in your social circle? It could be your family, could be your friends, could be the volunteer that's heard this disclosure. Who is it that you can actually um, say, I'm having thoughts, I'm I'm very uncomfortable, I'm in distress at this moment? Um, and kind of doing that little safety plan with them. And the safety plan sounds like a very complicated, big clinical thing, and it doesn't have to be. It can literally be, When I think like this, I'm going to phone this number or I'm going to knock on my neighbor's door and ask for help. Um, And I think that also very much kind of grounds people and reassures them that actually they do have a a support network around them. It can be unofficial, friends, neighbors, family, but it can also be official, like I'm going to call this helpline, for example, or this particular number. Um, And also asking them positive things. You know, I said at the beginning, hope and action are very much the the themes for this year. So what is it that gets them out of bed in the morning? What's keeping them going? What's giving them motivation? What gives them positive energy? And that can be things like their children. It can also be my dog or my academic course or my whatever it is they're involved in. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a very small thing. Um, But to help them focus on the positive aspects of their life um, as well. So that's what I would recommend for volunteers but it's tough it's a really tough thing to hear as well so volunteers need to be able I think to to act calmly not panic themselves when you hear that news not not cry yourself but to be able to respond in a calm manner to someone in distress 
that that's some very concrete advice, and it also sounds very difficult. Yeah. Um, so you said in the beginning something you can train. How do you do that? Um, but practically, how you do the training is through a lot of role plays, um, where one person plays the role of the person wishing to end their life, and the other person playing the role of a volunteer, and then literally testing um, through role plays, through a generic script or case study. Um, how yeah how would you respond when someone says this and you can do it in big um kind of scenario situations where you have maybe a big role play happening or you could just do it in pairs in a training session for example as well uh, maybe i should say at this point that we have a very good um suicide prevention guide on our website yes that might be able to help you start training um for, yeah for, for sure this. But I was also thinking, so what are what are the services or programs that national societies can do if they wish to work more in the area of suicide prevention and response? Yeah. So I think for organizationally, national societies can think very much about training up anybody who is interfacing with the public. So people at your branch office level, people maybe running helplines or hotlines, people at your reception desks in headquarter offices reception centers for refugees, anybody interfacing with the public needs to have that psychological first aid that basic training on being able to handle somebody in distress and that includes being able to handle difficult news such as someone saying I want to end my own life and secondly for the National Society if they are really committed to working with this particular programs they need to think much more about the supportive supervision systems around staff and volunteers working with this you can't just send a volunteer out and say we're doing suicide prevention programs and not give them any backup support And that can that also means having a, a service mapping, like a service directory of maybe professional or specialized service providers who you could refer someone to in distress, even if that referral is on a telephone, for example, rather than the National Society taking full responsibility. Because in some cases, people will need to sit down with a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist in extreme circumstances. Um, and particularly people that are admitted to hospital, if they have attempted to take their life, um, It's usually an automatic psychiatric referral at accident and emergency departments if they've had to support a patient like that. But we saw a lot during COVID-19 times that national societies had a, um, an interest and a willingness to set up hotlines or helplines. And that was related specifically for COVID-19, but we've also seen some wanting to set them up in relation to suicide prevention and response. And um, it's more actually of a... Um, Yeah, this is a, a kind of a higher level service, if I can say that. So it requires volunteers or staff to have much more training than just a basic psychological first aid. And these are people that are uh, trained to hear that information on the telephone, which is quite different than if someone's telling you face to face. Um, and then basically literally how to calm that person down the telephone and to go through those steps I mentioned um, before about the stabilization, um, about focusing on what keeps that person going what support systems they have around them um, and then also being able to refer that person to a local hospital or even to be able to activate um, maybe an ambulance to to be sent to that person's um, house or apartment wherever they're living um, if it's an acute emergency or some link to the emergency services it could also be the police um, but I think you we can often see there's a lot of national societies that run helplines for different reasons There's a lot of helplines to do with cash-based programming, for example, that tend to work very much around the logistics of enrolling in a cash program. But they might then also hear people in distress down the end of the telephone saying, actually, I, 
I, I, the money's not enough on a monthly basis. It could be refugees. I, this isn't enough. I'm thinking about ending my life. So again, it's it doesn't have to be a specialised hotline just for for suicide um, response. It could be any type of hotline or helpline where you may come across a caller um, doing that. Um, and we do have um, information on how to run or how to provide psychological first aid through hotlines. We have that at the Psychosocial Centre um, and also other material on, on suicide prevention and, and response in, in our resource library. Um, I think the big difference is with hotlines and helplines is is it's remote. You're, you're providing it down a telephone so you can't actually see the mannerisms, you can't see the behaviour, you can just hear the voice of a person in in distress in most cases. Um, and then the, for helplines, you obviously need to have a very strong supportive supervision link. So if you have got off a call with someone that was particularly distressed, that person needs space to process that as the operator on the helpline and to be able to talk to a manager or a supervisor about the difficult calls um, because it's tough managing, managing those lines. And I think it's particularly tough if you also add in the element of children. So I said at the beginning, teenagers are... Um, they're a group at very much at risk of this, particularly teenagers with more severe anxiety or, or um, depression type symptoms. And it can be tough speaking to a teenager down the phone or a child who is particularly distressed um, as well. And there are specialist organisations that do it, things like um, Childline that exist in many countries or also the Samaritans. Um, do this a lot. So for national societies, it can also be very much about linking with those existing service providers um, as well as some form of a referral network to, to create that more wraparound support for a person in distress. Thank you. That was very interesting. Yeah. You've been listening to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for staff and volunteers in the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, working with mental health and psychosocial support. In this episode, I interviewed technical team lead Sarah Harrison about how Red Cross, Red Crescent national societies can work with suicide prevention and response. You can find more resources on mental health and psychosocial support, including guidelines for suicide prevention on the IFSC Psychosocial Center website, pscenter.org. Resources include guides and manuals, training videos and information about upcoming trainings. My name is Jesper Gule, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Heartbeat of Humanity. Remember that mental health matters.